Hello and welcome, friends, family, and enemies alike, to episode 67 of Reading Cadence. I am your host, the displaced Wisconsinite, Phil Olson. Today, as per the schedule, we will be reading through an uncharacteristic Christmas story on Mondays, and this story that I've selected is entitled The Adventures of the Blue Carbuncle by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, a Sherlock Holmes mystery. Now, you may be asking yourself, what on earth is a carbuncle, and why have I never heard about it? Well, if you Google this, because that's what I do, is there are one of two definitions for a carbuncle. It is either A, a severe abscess or multiple boil in the skin, typically infected with Staphylococcus bacteria, or it's a bright red gem, in particular, a garnet cut on Kabochin. Now, I, both of those definitions, I feel, are incredibly confusing and misleading because I don't know what a Staphylococcus bacteria actually is, but if Sir Arthur Conan Doyle was going to write about such a thing, I don't think it would make it into a Sherlock Holmes novel. On the other side of the equation, a carbuncle is described as a bright red gem, and the the whole story is entitled The Adventure of the Blue Carbuncle. So it also leads to a very confusing conjecture, because I would think a blue carbuncle would be something like a sapphire, wouldn't you? And then it continues to clarify, particularly a garnet caught, cut on Kabuchin, which I didn't even bother to look that up, because their clarification on both of these definitions is super confusing. What is a Kabuchin? And then what is a Staphylococcus bacteria? Who knows? I actually understood the first part, a severe abscess of a multiple boil in the skin. I know what a boil is. And I know what a bright red gem is. Typically, it's a ruby, I would have thought. So, in case you were wondering, that's what a carbuncle is. So, I want you to be thinking about a few things. Um, let, think about, like, first impressions that you give off to people. Somebody that you've never met before. How do you get to know them? And how do you get other people to know you? Um, because in this first part, uh, you know... Sherlock Holmes is an excellent deductionist, and he also makes some pretty broad, incredibly specific, though, uh, stereotypes of the people based upon an article of clothing or how they're walking or whatever. And so I want you to take a look at that as I'm reading it um, and think about you know, some of the identity issues that are taking place in this story specifically that aren't necessarily related to first impressions, but just how identity plays a role in this story. So, let us begin with The Adventure of the Blue Carbuncle. I'd called upon my friend Sherlock Holmes upon the second morning after Christmas with the intention of wishing him the compliments of the season. He was lounging upon the sofa in a purple dressing gown, a pipe rack within his reach upon the right, and a pile of crumpled morning papers, evidently newly steadied, 
near at hand. Besides the couch was a wooden chair, and on the angle of the back hung a very seedy and disreputable hard felt hat, much the worse for wear, and cracked in several places. A lens and a forceps lying upon the seat of the chair suggested that the hat had been suspended in this manner for the purpose of examination. You are engaged, said I. Perhaps I interrupt you. Not at all. I'm glad to have a friend with whom I can discuss my results. The matter is a perfectly trivial one. He jerked his thumb in the direction of the old hat. But there are points in connection with it which are not entirely devoid of interest and even of instruction. I seated myself in his armchair and warmed my hands before his crackling fire, for a sharp frost had set in and the windows were thick with the ice crystals. I suppose, I remarked, that homely as it looks, this thing has some deadly story linked on to it, that it is the clue which will guide you into the solution of some mystery and the punishment of some crime. No, 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 no crime, <laughs> said Sherlock Holmes, laughing. Only one of those whimsical little incidences which will happen when you have four million human beings all jostling each other within the space of a few square miles. Amid the action and reaction of so dense a swarm of humanity, every possible combination of events may be expected to take place, and many a little problem will be presented which may be striking and bizarre without being criminal. We have already had experience of such. So much so, I remarked, that of the last six cases which I have added to my notes, three have been entirely free of any legal crime. Precisely! You allude to my attempt to recover the Irene Adler papers, to the singular case of Miss Mary Sutherland, and to the adventure of the man with the twisted lip. Well, I have no doubt that this small matter will fall into the same innocent category. You know Peterson, the commissionaire? Yes. It is to him that this trophy belongs. It is his hat. No, no, no! He found it. Its owner is unknown. I beg that you will look upon it, not as a battered billycock, but as an intellectual problem. And first, as to how it came here. It arrived upon Christmas morning in company with a good fat goose, which is, I have no doubt, roasting at this moment in front of Peterson's fire. The facts are these. About four o'clock on Christmas morning, Peterson, who, as you know, is a very honest fellow, was returning from some small jollification and was making his way homeward down Tottenham Court Road. In front of him, he saw, in the gaslight, a tallish man walking with a slight stagger and carrying a white goose slung over his shoulder. As he reached the corner of Goodge Street, a row broke out between this stranger and a little knot of ruffs. One of the latter knocked off the man's hat, on which he raised his stick to defend himself and, swinging it over his head, smashed the shop window behind him. Peterson had rushed forward to protect the stranger from his assailants, but the man, shocked at having broken the window and seeing an official-looking person in uniform rushing towards him, dropped his goose took to his heels and vanished amid the labyrinth of small streets which lie at the back of Tottenham Court Road. The roughs had also fled at the appearance of Peterson, so that he was left in position of the field of battle and also 
of the spoils of victory in the shape of this battered hat and a most unimpeachable Christmas goose. Which surely he restored to their owner? My dear fellow, there lies the problem. It is true that, for Mrs. Henry Baker, was printed upon a small card which was tied to the bird's left leg, and it is also true that the initials H.B. are legible upon the lining of this hat. But as there are some thousands of bakers and some hundreds of Henry Bakers in this city of ours, it is not easy to restore lost property to any one of them. What then did Peterson do? Ha! He brought round both hat and goose to me on Christmas morning, knowing that even the smallest problems are of interest to me. The goose we retained until this morning, when there were signs that, in spite of the slight frost, it would be well that it should be eaten without unnecessary delay. Its finder has carried it off, therefore, to fulfill the ultimate destiny of a goose. Well, I continue to retain the hat of the unknown gentleman who lost his Christmas dinner. Did he not advertise? No! Then what clue could you have had to his identity? Only as much as we can deduce. From his hat? Precisely! But you are joking! What can you gather from this old battered felt? Ah, here is my lens. You know my methods. What can you gather yourself as to the individuality of the man who has worn this article? I took the tattered object in my hands and turned it over rather ruefully. It was a very ordinary black hat of the usual round shape, hard and much the worse for wear. The lining had been of red silk, but was a good deal discolored. There was no maker's name, but, as Holmes had remarked, the initials H.B. were scrawled upon one side. It was pierced in the brim for a hat secure, but the elastic was missing. For the rest, it was cracked, exceedingly dusty, and spotted in several places, although there seemed to have been some attempt to hide the discolored patches by smearing them with ink. I can see nothing, said I, handing it back to my friend. On the contrary, Watson, you can see everything. You fail, however, to reason from what you see. You are too timid in drawing your inferences. Then pray tell me what it is that you can infer from this hat. He picked it up and gazed at it in the peculiar introspective fashion which was characteristic of him. It is perhaps less suggestive than it might have been, he remarked. And yet, there are a few inferences which are very distinct, and a few others which represent at least a strong balance of probability. That the man was highly intellectual is, of course, obvious upon the face of it, and also that he was fairly well-to-do within the last three years. Although he has now fallen upon evil days, he had foresight, but as less now than formerly, pointing to a moral retrogression which, when taken with the decline of his fortunes, seemed to indicate that some evil influence, probably drink, at work upon him. This may account also for the obvious fact that his wife has ceased to love him. My dear Holmes! He has, however, retained some degree of self-respect, he continued disregarding my remonstrance. He is a man who leads a sedentary life, goes out a little, is out of training entirely, is middle-aged, 
has grizzled hair, which he has cut within the last few days, and which he anoints with lime cream. There are the more patent facts which are to be deduced from his hat. Also, by the way, that it is extremely improbable that he has gas laid on in his house. You are certainly joking, Holmes. Not in the least. Is it possible that even now, when I give you these results, you are unable to see how they are attained? I have no doubt that I am very stupid, but I must confess that I am unable to follow you. For example, how did you deduce that this man was intellectual? For answer, Holmes clapped the hat upon his head. It came right over the forehead and settled upon the bridge of his nose. It is a question of cubic capacity, said he. A man with so large a brain must have something in it. The decline of his fortunes, then. This hat is three years old. These flat brims, curled at the edge, came in, then. It is a hat of the very best quality. Look at the band of ribbed silk in the excellent lining. If this man could afford to buy so expensive a hat three years ago, and has no hat since then, then he has assuredly gone down in the world. Well, that is clear enough, certainly. But how about the foresight and the moral retrogression? Ha! Here is this foresight, said he, putting his finger upon the little disc in the loop of the hat secure. They are never sold upon hats. If this man ordered one, it is a sign of a certain amount of foresight, since he has went out of his way to take this precaution against the wind. But, since we see that he has broken the elastic and is not troubled to replace it, it is obvious that he has less foresight now than formerly, which is a distinct proof of a weakening nature. On the other hand, he has endeavored to conceal some of the stains upon the felt by daubing them with ink, which is a sign that he has not entirely lost his self-respect. Your reasoning is certainly plausible. The further points, that he is middle-aged, that his hair is grizzled, that it had been recently cut, and that he uses lime cream, are all to be gathered from a close examination of the lower part of the lining. The lens discloses a large number of hair ends, clean-cut by the scissors of the barber. They all appear to be adhesive, and there is a distinct odor of lime cream. This dust, you will observe, is not the gritty gray dust of the street, but the fluffy brown dust of the house, showing that it has been hung up indoors most of the time, while the marks of moisture upon the inside are proof positive that the wearer perspired freely and could therefore hardly be in the best of training. But his wife, you said, that she had ceased to love him. This hat has not been brushed for weeks. When I see you, my dear Watson, with a week's accumulation of dust upon your hat, and when your wife allows you to go out in such a state, I shall fear that you also have been unfortunate enough to lose your wife's affection. But he might be a bachelor. Nay, he was bringing home the goose as a peace offering to his wife. Remember the card upon the bird's leg? You have an answer to everything, but... How on earth do you deduce that the gas is not laid on in his house? One tallow stain, or even two, might come by chance. But when I see no less than five, I think there can be little doubt 
that the individual must be brought into frequent contact with burning tallow, walks upstairs at night, probably with his hat in one hand, and a guttering candle in the other. Anyhow, he never got tallow stains from a gas jet. Are you satisfied? Well, it is very ingenious, said I, laughing. But since, as you said just now, there's been no crime committed and no harm done to save the loss of a goose, all this seems to be rather a waste of energy. Sherlock Holmes had opened his mouth to reply when the door flew open and Peterson, the commissioner, rushed into the apartment with flushed cheeks and the face of a man who is dazed with astonishment. The goose, Mr. Holmes! The goose, sir! He gasped. Ah, what of it, then? Has it returned to life and flapped off through the kitchen window? Holmes twisted himself round upon the sofa to get a fairer view of the man's excited face. See here! See what my wife found in its crop! He held out his hand and displayed upon the center of the palm a brilliantly scintillating blue stone rather smaller than a bean in size, but of such purity and radiance that it twinkled like an electric point in the dark hollow of his hand. Sherlock Holmes sat up with a whistle. By Jove, Peterson, said he, this is a treasure trove indeed. I suppose you know what you've got. A diamond, sir? A precious stone? It cuts into glass as though it were putty. It's more than a precious stone. It is THE precious stone. Not the Countess of Morcar's blue carbuncle, I ejaculated. Precisely so. I ought to know its size and shape, seeing that I have read the advertisement about it in the Times every day lately. It is absolutely unique, and its value can only be conjectured, but the reward offered of £1,000 is certainly not within a twentieth part of the market price. A thousand pounds? Great Lord of mercy! The commissioner plumped down into a chair and stared from one to the other of us. That is the reward, and I have reason to know that there are sentimental considerations in the background which would induce the Countess to part with half her fortune if she could but recover the gem. It was lost, if I remember aright, at the Hotel Cosmopolitan, I remarked. Precisely so. On December 22nd, just five days ago, John Horner, a plumber, was accused of having abstracted it from the lady's jewel case. The evidence against him was so strong that the case has been referred to the Assizes. I have some account of the matter here, I believe. He rummaged amid his newspapers, glancing over the dates, until at last he smoothed out one, doubled it over, and read the following paragraph. Hotel Cosmopolitan Jewel Robbery. John Horner, 26, plumber, was brought up upon the charge of having upon the 22nd instance, abstracted from the jewel case of the Countess of Morcar, the valuable gem known as the Blue Carbuncle. James Ryder, upper attendant at the hotel, gave his evidence to the effect that he had shown Horner up to the dressing room of the Countess of Morcar upon the day of the robbery in order that he might solder the second bar of the grate, which was loose. He had remained with Horner some little time, but had finally been called away. On returning, he found that Horner had disappeared, 
that the bureau had been forced open and that the small Morocco casket in which, as it afterwards transpired, the countess was accustomed to keep her jewel was lying empty upon the dressing table. Ryder instantly gave the alarm and Horner was arrested the same evening, but the stone could not be found either upon his person or in his rooms. Catherine Cusack, maid to the countess, deposed to having heard Ryder's cry of dismay on discovering the robbery, and to having rushed into the room where she found matters as described by the last witness. Inspector Bradstreet, B Division, gave evidence as to the arrest of Horner, who struggled frantically and protested his innocence in the strongest terms. Evidence of a previous conviction for robbery having been given against the prisoner, the magistrate refused to deal summarily with the offense, but referred it to the Assizes. Horner, who had shown signs of intense emotion during the proceedings, fainted away at the conclusion and was carried out of court. Hmm. So much for the police court, said Holmes, thoughtfully tossing aside the paper. The question for us now to solve is the sequence of events leading from a rifled jewel case at one end to the crop of a goose in Tottenham Court Road at the other. You see, Watson, our little deductions have suddenly assumed a much more important and less innocent aspect. Here is the stone. The stone came from the goose, and the goose came from Mr. Henry Baker, the gentleman with the bad hat, and all the other characteristics with which I have bored you. So now, we must set ourselves very seriously to finding this gentleman and ascertaining what part he has played in this little mystery. To do this, we must try the simplest means first, and these lie undoubtedly in an advertisement in all the evening papers. If this fail, I shall have recourse to other methods. What will you say? Give me a pencil and that slip of paper. Now then. Found at the corner of Goodge Street, a goose and a black felt hat. Mr. Henry Baker can have the same by applying at 6.30 this evening at 221B Baker Street. That is clear and concise. Very. But will he see it? Well, he is sure to keep an eye on the papers, since, to a poor man, the loss was a heavy one. He was clearly so scared by his mischance in breaking the window and by the approach of Peterson that he thought of nothing but the flight. But since then, he must have bitterly regretted the impulse which caused him to drop his bird. Then again, the introduction of his name will cause him to see it, for everyone who knows him will direct his attention to it as well. Here you are, Peterson. Run down to the advertising agency and have this put in the evening papers. In which, sir? Oh, um, in the Globe, Star, Paul Mall, St. James' Gazette, Evening News, Standard, Echo, and any others that occur to you. Very well, sir. And this stone? Ah, yes. I shall keep the stone. Thank you. And I say, Peterson, just buy a goose on your way back and leave it here with me, for we must have one to give this gentleman in place of the one which your family is now devouring. When the commissioner had gone, Holmes took up the stone and held it against the light. It's a bonny thing, said he. Just see how it glints and sparkles. Of course, it is a nucleus and focus of crime. 
every good stone is. They are the devil's pet baits. In the larger and older jewels, every facet may stand for a bloody deed. This stone is not yet twenty years old. It was found in the banks of the Amoy River in southern China and is remarkable in having every characteristic of the carbuncle, save that it is blue in shade instead of ruby red. In spite of its youth, it is already a sinister history. There have been two murders, a vitriol throwing, a suicide, and several robberies brought about for the sake of this forty-grain weight of crystallized charcoal. Who would think that so pretty a toy would be a purveyor to the gallows and the prison? I'll lock it up in my strongbox now, and drop a line to the Countess to say that we have it. Do you think that this man Horner is innocent? I cannot tell. Well then, do you imagine that this other one, uh, Henry Baker, has anything to do with the matter? It is, I think, much more likely that Henry Baker is an absolutely innocent man who had no idea that the bird which he was carrying was of considerably more value than if it were made of solid gold. That, however, I shall determine by a very simple test if we have an answer to our advertisement. And you can do nothing until then? Nothing. In that case, I shall continue my professional round, but I shall come back in the evening at the hour you have mentioned, for I would like to see the solution of so tangled a business. Very glad to see you. I dine at seven. There is a woodcock, I believe. By the way, in view of recent occurrences, Perhaps I ought to ask Mrs. Hudson to examine its crop. End of part one of The Adventure of the Blue Carbuncle. So it appears that in the 19th century UK, the status symbol for every dude was the hat they wore and the quality and shape that it was in. I think if we could contemporize it, it would probably be somebody's shoes, right? You know, people are willing to pay, what, you know, like $100,000 for a good pair of shoes. And, you know, well, as much as that. I mean, you look into anybody's closet, you'll probably see at least eight pairs of shoes, if not more. Um, And maybe this was what it was like with hats, except you had to have a really good hat, and it had to be really well-maintained. I mean, Sherlock Holmes knew so much about this hat's existence previously that he was able to tell that it was a three-year-old hat based upon a pure stylized design. I mean, somebody like that, I don't know if Sherlock Holmes is described as somebody with like a photographic memory or something, but I can't remember fashion trends from three years ago like it just doesn't happen in my brain that's not something that's important to me but this man has been able to be so observant that he's like oh yeah the curled up edges was so three years ago and this guy never bothered to update his hat and his wife should have been brushing his hat to indicate her love for him so that he could keep up appearances with his friends and This man should have been taking care of his hat enough to make sure that it was functioning properly with all of the accessories that it had to keep it from blowing off of his head and all these weird things that I never knew about hats having in the 1800s. 
So, wow. I wish somebody would be able to tell me, in contemporary America, what is the point of buying, you know, $500 pair of shoes, maybe they're even more, I don't keep up to date on these things, a $500 pair of shoes, for let's just say, and keeping it so that it doesn't have any creases or wrinkles in it. How the... F- how are you supposed to wear the shoes without creasing them? I mean, you've got to walk. You've got to bend your toes as you walk. Like, what are you doing? Like, stomping everywhere? <laughs> like, I would just assume that you were a naturally, you know, angry person all the time if you were just stomping everywhere and you're like, no, 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 it's to prevent my shoes from being wrinkled. Like, that's how like ridiculous i think this this appears to me when he's able to deduce all these things from a hat and he is able to neatly summarize this man's life in three core categories one the dude is overweight based on how much he's perspiring and then the lines around his hat two the intelligence of the man based upon the size of his head which i don't buy one bit because I've known some very large-headed people and not the brightest bulbs on the planet. And then three, that he's having marital problems because his wife isn't brushing his hat on the regular basis to keep dust. And I don't know what you do when you brush somebody's hat, how it could make it look better. But apparently that's a sign of marital problems. So if you see me showing up to work with, you know, stains on my shoes, apparently... I'm having marital problems even though I'm not married? I I don't know, man. So, this is quite an interesting fashion statement that is drawn from here. Probably in Phil's life, my socks would be something you'd probably be able to tell the most about me um, from. So, like, if somebody were to nab one of my socks, you might be able to get a hint of the type of person that I am based upon my socks. So, um, yeah, I mean, really strange situation here. But, like, it brings the topic of first impressions that you have about somebody. Okay, In 1800s, you would look at their hats, okay, if they were dudes, and be like, hmm, ooh, this person doesn't really take care of themselves. Ooh, they're having marital problems. You know, <laughs> that would be what it would be. Um, I've been told that people's first impressions a lot of them are made again let's go back to it based off of somebody's shoes doesn't make a lot of sense to me because i'm usually looking at somebody in the face well actually more specifically their teeth but that's another time for another story um but you know for first impressions i mean it's all about the relationship right and this is the rub regarding this entire jewel theft okay because john horner was there to repair the pipes in the Countess of Morcar's house. Okay, that was his job and role. This dude named James Ryder, who, I don't know, a head of the hotel or something, was keeping an eye on the dude. He got called away to some other pressing matters, and when he came back, James Horner was gone, or John Horner was gone, the jewels were gone, and, you know, he was ratted on by, by Ryder. Okay, so a lot of suspicious things. I mean, shame on John Horner for not letting anybody know that he was leaving, okay? Because that's 
that's bad you know customer service you got to tell somebody hey i'm on my way out you can't just leave when a job's done you got to make sure the customer is satisfied with the end result okay i was kind of a little curious as to whether the pipes were fixed at the end of this not that the jewel was stolen because something else had to have happened in that room with another individual to cause John Horner to leave without letting anybody know of the work that was done and if they could check to make sure it was indeed fixed so that he could go on his way and get paid. I mean, that's that's common sense here, okay? So shame on him for not doing that. He deserved to at least go to court. How he got framed for the... St- for being stolen is beyond me because you need at least two witnesses and at least an American court to be able to prove that somebody's guilty and near as I can tell there was nobody around at the time of the robbery to corroborate yes indeed it was him they didn't find the jewels on him he could have been a really good hider but I would think I I mean golly like stuffing in a goose like that's commitment right there you know, going back to my original point, it's all about the relationship, right? Um, Countess of Morcar is more likely to trust, you know, her maid, you know, Catherine Cusack, or James Ryder even, whom she knows works for this building, over a plumber who she's never met in her life and who she just needed to have his expertise to fix her pipes. So, uh, I mean... I mean, that goes, that goes along with anything. If I was working with somebody's, you know, cousin or, or something on a project, didn't know the actual people, let's say that it was their cousin's, you know, aunt or something, they were like, hey, I need you to help me um, cat sit for this, my, my uncle, okay? And so you and him or you and her go out and, you know, you're cat sitting. The cousin's like, hey, man, I got to leave. on something can you like man the house for a little while and he comes back and the cat's dead um first person that his aunt or uncle is going to blame is you because they don't know you and then the cousin's going to get off scot-free let's say he came back killed the cat because he didn't really like it and then pretended like he was gone for like three hours elaborate plot to kill the cat It gets framed on you because you don't have a relationship with his aunt or uncle, and he has a decent alibi that he was gone at the time. I mean, this is a classic frame case, in my opinion. There are either some unknown characters that we're not introduced to yet that were responsible for the stealing of the carbuncle, um, or these ruffians, obviously they had to have known that the goose had a gem in it. They're not going to pick a guy who has, you know, a rough battered and tattered hat i mean from what i know from 1800s fashion he's not the guy you want to mug you want to mug the guy who has the best shiniest top hat in great britain right so they clearly it all had to be about the goose in my opinion so i think trying to find this baker fellow although may lead to something I guess it's all he's got to go off of at this point, but wouldn't really want my life summed up by my hat. Yikes. So form good relationships with the people around you so you don't get accused of stealing somebody's blue carbuncle, which is an incredibly rare color to have for a carbuncle 
since they're traditionally red garnets. So there you have it. This is fascinating story, and it will be resolved by next week Friday. Thank you all so much for listening to another episode of Reading Cadence. I am your host, the displaced Wisconsinite, Phil Olson, and as they say in showbiz, that's all he wrote for now. <laughs>